what I'm excited about with this movie is like now I have seen it and it's something that I can add to my repertoire like as a film snob. Like I can for the rest of my life while I'm watching a movie I can be like oh this reminds me of Nosferatu. You know the silent German expressionist horror movie from 1922. Oh you haven't seen that? I guess it could be you know a difficult watch for other people but I'm I'm an intellectual so I have seen it and I'm really smart for that. Yeah, so when you're watching SpongeBob SquarePants and you see Nosferatu pop up, you'll be like, aha, I understand the reference. I know you, SpongeBob. I know your references. Perfect. Like, I'm, I'm seriously shook, though. Like, Nosferatu is the night manager at the Krusty Krab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> so stupid. I love it. Oh my god. Alright, hello, hello, and welcome to Skeleton Closet, a podcast and the intersection of queerness and horror. I'm Jake. And I'm Shannon. And today we will be talking about Nosferatu, the 1922 film. So a film that is a hundred frickin' years old. I was, like, I was stoked to watch a movie that's a hundred years old. It was, like, it's it adds to the atmosphere i think when you're watching it and just looking and going like mm. this was a hundred years ago like all of these people are now gone right there's there's no way unless someone is like a little baby when this movie is shot there's no way mm. anyone is still around um i felt like i don't know it's more than other movies we've watched like this is a real window into the past they didn't quite know how to make movies yet back then either like it was still a very yeah. new industry some of the storytelling was like I, I will say it was not the easiest watch. Um, mm. We, I, I felt the need to like, you know, sort of cut it some slack at some points. There were certain moments where I couldn't really understand what they were trying to tell me. Or I was like, has time progressed? Is it daytime or nighttime? There's one moment where he's like, oh, it's almost midnight. I'm like, it is? Like, I, I straight up <laughs> thought it was noon based on just the lighting and stuff. So, um, but like I said, I mean, I'm glad to have this movie to add to my repertoire and um i i feel like you just learn things about movies by watching a movie this old you know yeah you you really do learn about movies like this is the like og reference material and i i agree like being able to watch this was pretty freaking cool like i love how it's available on youtube so like i like for free right like one of those things that's just like available on the public domain and I think I think I read somewhere that Murnau, uh, the director of the film, is like a gay man or like a homosexual. So right. I hope yes, that's of course. true. <laughs> yeah. No, we he was. Well, we can talk more about that later because his his sort of um Yes. The person that was described in many articles as the love of his life kind of becomes relevant in in the I guess we'll say the uh, social yes. context of the movie. Um one thing I'm curious about, did you watch it with music or without? Because there's there's several different versions of this available. Pretty much all we can find are unofficial cuts of the movie, right? There is no one yeah. official, like, this is exactly how the movie is meant to be watched. Um, yeah. So if you if you go on YouTube or, or Wikipedia, we mentioned in the last episode, this movie's on Wikipedia, uh, which Literally. I don't think you've been able to say about any movie before. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, there are different cuts of the movie there are different like versions of it edited together and there are different soundtracks for it um yes. so yeah did you watch it with sound or without i so i watched two different versions of it with 
two oh. different sounds and two different versions of editing. Like, the one I watched, it was, like, very nicely edited. It was all, like, kind of, like, the resolution was updated, so the resolution was a lot higher, and everything was black and white, and it had, like, this, like, orchestra, and it, like, the music was kind of too cheerful. Like, <laughs> I I wasn't so fond of that one. And then the second one I watched had, like, it was, like, sepia filtered and it had like mm. a bluish filter for like nighttime scenes so and it was like lo- a lot lower quality but the yeah. music was a lot better because it was like just an organ player i think that's the version that i watched because it, it yeah. had that blue and i thought i don't know i thought the film was like damaged or something when it was blue so maybe that's why i couldn't <laughs> tell that it was nighttime um i, I think it was for nighttime yeah well, because I was even, I was watching this with my partner and I was like, I, th- I think it was like really, it must have been really hot to be wearing these costumes because it looks like it's so sunny yeah. out. <laughs> and, then, and then again, we find out that it's almost midnight. Um, but when it came to the music, I watched the one that I think had the organ player and I truly felt yeah. like at most points in the movie, that dude was just making noise. Like it, it oh, didn't totally. feel like... <laughs> the music matched the action on the screen at any point and actually for the last like maybe 10 minutes of the movie i just pressed mute on my tv and watched the rest of it legit silent and i, I was i should have done this the whole time it was actually a mistake to watch it with music at all in my opinion yeah it was, it was a much more like immersive experience when it was silent and there wasn't some guy banging around on an organ <laughs> the oh, whole time. really so that that was my experience that's my my opinion um yeah yeah do you want to get into our uh, our summary oh sure yeah um I, I i'm happy to start so i took the liberty of writing up the summary this time usually shannon does it but god i decided bless to you. give them a break um god bless so, you <laughs> thank you yeah <laughs> no problem so i i took the liberty of doing this one so i'll start it off and then we'll we'll trade off as usual our story begins in 1838. That's another thing. This movie was made in 1922, but it's set in 1838. So it's set almost 200 years ago, was made 100 yeah. years ago. Uh, our story begins in 1838. Thomas Hutter and his wife Ellen live in a in the quaint German town of Wisborg, and Hutter works for a mysterious real estate agent known only as Knock, as in how you knock on a door. Knock is sort of eccentric and people don't really know much about him, but he pays his people well and that's what matters to Hutter and his wife Ellen. Uh, Knock receives a letter from his mysterious foreign noble, Count Orlock of Transylvania, saying the Count would like to buy an abandoned house in Wisborg. The perfect house, according to Knock, is directly across the street from where Hutter lives. He sends Hutter to Transylvania to visit Count Orlock and make the sale in person. Ellen doesn't like the idea of Hutter leaving, but Hutter is so enthused by the prospect of a good commission that he leaves her with some friends and embarks for the land of ghosts and thieves, regardless of her complaints. He soon arrives at an inn in Transylvania where the locals are aghast at the mention of Count Orlock. They tell Hutter that he can't go out tonight because there's werewolves in the area. When he settles down for the night in his room at the inn, he finds a book that warns of the dangers of vampires. He emphatically disregards these warnings, but he brings the book with him anyway. The next day, Hutter hires a carriage to take him to the castle. However, they won't bring him across a mountain pass once the castle is in sight, so he has to walk the rest of the way. 
or so it seems until a distinctly creepy carriage with a Crypt Keeper-like driver pulls up and brings him to the castle's gate. This de detour took so long that it's nearly midnight when he arrives and meets Count Orlock, a tall, gaunt man with pointed fingers and dark eyes. Hutter and Orlock sit down for dinner, and Hutter accidentally cuts himself while slicing some bread. Orlock is transfixed by the blood coming out of Hutter, but picks up on his discomfort and asks his new friend to hang out with him until the sun rises. The next day, Hutter wakes up with bite marks on his neck. What? Eek! He's seen some troubling things and picked up on some spooky vibes, but the only thing this wife guy can think to do is send a letter home to Ellen complaining about the mosquitoes in Transylvania. Orlock and Hutter have dinner again that night, and upon seeing a picture of Ellen and her lovely neck, Orlock resolves to buy the house in Weisborg, and later comes to feed on Hutter again while he sleeps. Meanwhile, Ellen is not doing great back at home. While Orlock is approaching her man with the intention of sucking him down like a Kool-Aid jammer, she's sleepwalking on the balcony <laughs> railing and screaming for Hutter in her sleep. So she stupid. does call him Hutter, by the way. She calls him, like, by his last name. She's like, Hutter! While yeah. she's, like, having a nightmare about him getting sucked down. Uh, Orlock seems to sense her screams and decides against feeding on Hutter again. Uh, the doctor says that she has nothing more than some, quote, harmless blood congestions, uh, and Hutter lives through the night. This little peek into 1922 medicine there for you. <laughs> so when Hutter wakes up, he decides he's pretty sure Orlock is a vampire and seeks to investigate. He finds Orlock's coffin where he sleeps, and the melodramatic bitch is so spooked he runs up to his room and sits there hyperventilating till night falls again. He peeks out his window to see Orlock loading several coffins onto a horse cart, then hopping in one and packing himself up for the journey. Hutter knows he's headed for Weisborg, and therefore he's heading for Ellen, so he fashions himself a sheet rope and climbs out the window, but falls to the bottom and knocks himself unconscious. Still, he gets right back up on the horse and rides back to Weisborg. Okay, so here's a question I have, and I don't know if this scene came through different in one of the edits that you watched. Why did he tie himself a rope and climb out the window? He was not... He I... didn't try the door. It wasn't locked. He was not, like, locked in a tower. He just decided that... He... Yeah. I... I guess there's I no time to spare, so... He needed to fashion yeah, a himself a confused. sheet rope rather than just run down to the front door. I didn't get it. <laughs> uh, maybe he was, like, too scared of Orlock, but, like, he literally had just watched Orlock leave. So... I, I kind of think Hutter's just very stupid. <laughs> I don't know. I think he just he, can't hold he is. two thoughts in his head at the same time. And he was, like, the most direct way to the ground is out the window, of course, so that's the way I need to go. What's the fastest way well, like, between two points? A straight line. Yes, yes, a straight line, <laughs> and that straight line is a sheet rope. Oh my god. Uh, I think they meanwhile... did it so that he would... Oh no, go on. No, please, after you. Like, I I think they did that so that he would have to pass out, because then he got seen by a doctor, right? Yeah, I didn't feel that that scene added anything, though, because he kind of just and got it... up and left after the doctor saw him. And they don't know about concussions in 1922. Yeah, true. They don't know that that's a thing. True, true, true. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's no reason. 
<laughs> Anyhow, meanwhile, the vampire's coffin goes on a journey. Uh, first the horse cart, then a river raft, then a schooner. The coffins begin to leak a large number of rats, and the sailors who are bitten by them fall extremely ill. Within a couple days, the entire boat is overcome by disease, all of the sailors are dead, and Orlok himself takes over the ship's navigation. He arrives in Wisborg, carries the coffin off the ship, and wanders around till he finds the house that he bought. Uh, the townspeople come to investigate the ghost ship and find the captain's log detailing the plague. The whole town goes on lockdown and the bodies start piling up. But on the bright side, Hutter has arrived back in Wisborg too. Woohoo! On the not-so-bright side, Nosferatu now lives across the street and watches Ellen and Hutter while they sleep. When he's not out in the streets, that is, of Weisberg, slurping some fresh neck. That's Ellen finds <laughs> Ellen finds the vampire book in Hutter's things and reads a passage that says vampires can be defeated if a sinless maiden makes the vampire forget the crow of the cock. So, you know, the the morning AM alarm. The rooster. Uh, yeah. By giving her blood away willingly. So she has to bleed willingly. Wait, what? She waits until the wee hours of the morning and pretends to have another medical emergency. When Hutter runs to get the doctor, she stands in front of her open window, tempting the vampire. Nosferatu comes across the street, up the stairs to the Hutter residence, and feeds on Ellen's lovely neck until the cock crows. Hear that cockadoodle-do, signaling morning. As the sun rises, uh, Count Orlock turns to ash, and the nightmare is over. Ellen lives just long enough for Hutter to come back and embrace her as she dies. The last shot is of Orlock's castle in Transylvania crumbling away. I, what a movie. Yeah, I feel like we, we mentioned it a few times, but yeah, there's some moments where I was just like, why? So like him climbing out the Hutter climbing out the window is one of the things that we met when we're talking about the storytelling. It's sort of, why did this happen? I don't think I quite understand and then there were some scenes that were also funny to me. Like when I mentioned um, Nosferatu gets off the boat and carries his coffin around for a while looking for his house. Oh my god. That went on for like five minutes, right? Of him just kind of carrying the coffin and walking around and just sort of like, it, it looked like he didn't know where to put it. <laughs> it looked like he just kind of had yeah. a burdensome object, didn't know where to go with it. And then he just kind of literally wandered around for like five minutes of screen time until he found his place. And for me, I'm like, when you're when you're making a horror movie, I'm thinking about an audience sitting there in the theater in 1922, right? Are they just like yeah. clutching themselves in fear the entire time while this dude just kind of wanders around cluelessly? Or, yeah, what I mean, were they going for there? So honestly, and I was going to ask this later, but since you brought it up, uh, yeah. that is actually my favorite part of the entire movie, I think. Really? Is... Like, I have two favorite parts. Like, one is about, like, the shadows, which we'll talk about later. And mm -hmm. two is Orlok walking around carrying his <laughs> coffin. Because, like, it's just hilarious to watch him carry it. But also, like, uh, it, it's giving me, like, Jesus vibes, honestly. Like, you know how Jesus had oh. to, like, carry his cross and, like, oh. carry the burden of that? Like, Orlok has to carry his coffin. And, like, it's probably a coffin full of dirt. You know, since apparently to keep his power, he needs to, like, you know, uh, have the soil of the plot where he was originally buried, like, with a new... The goddamned soil. The goddamned soil. Yes, very important. <laughs> yeah. It is, like, sacred and profane. So his profane 
soil in a goddamned coffin. And right. I I just loved him carrying that around. Like he did look lost. He like he looked like he needed directions from someone. The poor thing. I okay, so one of the things that I think they did really well in the movie is like the design of the character of Nosferatu is like he is terrifying to, to just look at. And yeah. I remember like you you mentioned earlier he shows up in a SpongeBob episode. Um they took clips from this movie and inserted it into SpongeBob and he's yeah, the night manager of the Krusty Krab. Um <laughs> I I was terrified by that as a kid, like just the image of him. Like I'd, I Oh shit. He's a nightmare. And um like i don't know i i was like overcome with like a sense of dread when he was on the screen and especially that scene where he's creeping up on hutter to go feed on him and whatever oh god Uh, yeah it's so creepy they did such a good job of like that that was actually terrifying to look at um my partner had a different take on it because she has seen so like all she's seen of nosferatu is the memes and stuff right he's kind of like yeah a figure in in online spaces now and so she was saying, I was like, are you not terrified by this when you look at him? And she's like, no, I, I love him. He's he's a special little guy. I want him to succeed. Uh, and that's that's the way she feels. He's he's like a, a little, you know, he's a blorbo. He's he's lovable. <laughs> he Aww. She wants to see him grow up big and strong. And so I feel like, yeah, I, I guess I can understand how you felt that way when he's wandering around with his coffin. He doesn't know where that thing goes. He's just a little guy. Wow, I love how you both have such different takes. Like, I thought Nosferatu's <laughs> yeah. pretty creepy too. Like, the thing that makes him even creepier is like his movement because like his pace is so like measured. Like he walks very slowly. Like especially when he's like creeping up on Hutter that first night. Like he moves very slowly, and I wonder if it's because um, the director like used a literal metronome while filming to like pace their movements oh wow i did not know that but that's really interesting and i could see how like if you were presenting it with uh (laughs) with a score that made any sense or took that into account like that would be yeah that would really add to the experience i'm sad that i didn't get that (laughs) um right yeah i so i mean we can jump into our sort of like analytical discussion of it but one of the things that i wanted to talk about was how vampires like this is one of the first vampire movies ever right this is like the quintessential vampire movie um and this movie as with many other pieces of vampire literature has been interpreted as instilling fear of the other and and particularly for this movie repackaging and reproducing jewish stereotypes and this is a thing that i think you know was sort of important for us to talk about this this is something that has been leveled against Mm -hmm. this movie and again it's from germany in the 1920s so i feel like people aren't going to necessarily have patience for that kind of thing if, if that's if that's how it's interpreted. Um, and I have a quote from Wikipedia here that I I wanted to, to read this word for word, and I know it might be kind of a no-no to read Wikipedia word for word on an intellectual podcast such as ours, but I, I wanted to make sure that we get the wording of this right because I've been known to stumble over my words when I'm talking about really sensitive information. But they say that the the physical appearance of Count Orlock with his hooked nose, long claw-like fingernails, and large bald head has been compared to stereotypical caricatures of Jewish people from the time in which Nosferatu was produced. His features have also been compared to those of a rat or mouse, uh, the former of which Jews were often equated with. So, mm. yeah, there's there's a lot of ways where vampires often 
with their sort of eccentricity and their separateness from from the main culture of whether it's London in the novel or Wisborg or Wiseborg in in this movie they're they're sort of othered they're eccentric they are they live in a way that is not acceptable to the the populace and yeah they they often bear this sort of really unfortunate resemblance to anti-semitic caricatures which is Mm. not desirable yeah not desirable at all but i Um, think it's unintentional right i it really seems that way so we i did a bit of research and i was reading a bbc culture article which was uh revisiting nosferatu 100 years later right as we are um it's the article is by nicholas barber it's called nosferatu the monster who still terrifies 100 years on uh, and he quotes another article, actually, by Jay Hoberman, a, a film critic who specializes in Jewish representation. Um, and Hoberman wrote in, in a 2020 essay that Orlok is an ancient, ex- tru- sorry, pardon me, uh, an ancient, tremendously powerful creature, a sort of humanoid, rod- humanoid rodent given an imposing hooked nose who communicates with his minions in a mysterious code, which includes several Hebrew letters as well as the Star of David. So again, things look really bad. Um, Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Hoberman argues, Nosferatu may project a primal fear of foreign contagion, which isn't specifically fixated on Jewishness. Nosferatu's script was written by Henrik Galen, Henrik Galen, I believe, actually, uh, who is Jewish. The the cast included several Jewish actors, and there's no suggestion that Murnau, uh, who who was not Jewish, was anti-Semitic. Indeed, the love of Murnau's life, poet Hans Ehrenbaum Degle, uh, killed in the war, was the son of a Jewish banker. Um, Alexander Granach, who played Nock, was also Jewish. So it really does seem like those things were unintentional. This doesn't really come across as propaganda, but I think it's important to note that, like, these resemblances to these stereotypes and characters do exist, and, and it is part of the movie. Like, like it or not, that's that's part of how it's going to be interpreted, especially this this amount of time later, with the with the hindsight on history that we have now. Yeah, with that hindsight now, we can see how maybe in like this film was originally inspired by bram stoker's dracula right which was Mm -hmm. you know in that story the vampire goes to london as you mentioned but in this story it was made by germans for germans you know and so they made it to be more appealing to a german audience right and so as germans who were existing in the early 1920s you know this was the ramp up to world war ii and so the fears at the time um without that without our hindsight you know that we have now the fears at the time would have been of an other you know a person who did look like count orlock you know and so they're Mm -hmm. really just playing on the fears of the time and it makes sense in that way and it probably wasn't malicious you know in their representation of nosferatu as you know having the hooked nose and the long fingernails and being you know an other but it ends up that way just just because that's what would have scared people at the time right and i think I actually love that your partner would like kind of supported Count Orlock. Like, oh, I just want to <laughs> yeah. see the little guy succeed. You know, he's so cute because that <laughs> yeah. actually does. It gives us a different perspective on him, right? As like, oh, like at the time, you know, 1922, he would have been so scary and feared by people in the audience. But 
if you look at the director and the actors who like we have um like a homosexual man we have jewish actors so we have people in the film production crew who are others and who would probably mm -hmm. more so align themselves with count orlock than with hutter and his wife so mm. i wonder if uh murnau had a very different perspective and i wonder if that would have come across more in like watching the movie silently being able to like more so identify as orlock right like you were trying to purchase you know an empty place in a new town you know you're really disliked by the local people for some reason you know like people don't come near your castle right like they think it's creepy and unusual but what if mm. you are creepy and unusual right doesn't everyone deserve to be loved like who cares if they end up with like mosquito bites on their neck sometimes that happen to be right beside one another like <laughs> it's, it's, sometimes you just you just need a friend and you know orlock is wandering lost in this new german town probably trying to find people to ask where's my new house you know where do i put uh, this coffin <laughs> it's where so do funny. i put this coffin it's so full of goddamn soil I, I feel like uh, this is one of the things like we talked about it a while ago, but if you sort of try to picture like a lovable version of Dracula, you end up with some or Nosferatu or whoever you end up with something pretty close to Dr. Frankenfurter, right? Like that. You that do. Was such a, like fun. We've, we've already done an entire episode of Rocky Horror Picture Show, but like what a fun sort of take on the gothic horror thing, right? Of like, oh, you know, maybe this guy has been othered and, and people are afraid of him this whole time. And maybe he just wants to express himself and have weird, awesome Transylvanian sex parties and stuff. We don't know that about Count Orlock, but he, he definitely is causing harm to the locals, what with the rats and the plague and, and all that oh, yeah. stuff and the biting people. Why, by the way, did he feed on Hutter once and not kill him and then come back again, presumably to kill him? I, that's... Do you need to feed I, on I, someone twice to kill them? Because he kind of just kills with reckless abandon once he gets to Isborg. He does, but I think I think he wanted the company. Like I, because he was very like when when Hutter started bleeding, like he could have mm. just like jumped him right then, right yeah. there at the dinner table, like and you know sucked the blood of like from his thumb because he cut his thumb, but he mentions like when he's like oh you know like i don't really get company like come come dear friend sit with me until the sun rises you know like i think he's lonely he did come off desperate in that scene very <laughs> like, desperate oh my god yeah. like he was like he was like Warlock my dear friend my man. very dear friend like he, yeah yeah he was really imposing friendship on hutter oh very much so but, like, I think he was just lonely, you know? It looks like he hasn't had company in his castle for a long time. He mentions, he's like, oh, the servants are asleep because it's past midnight. But I don't think he has any servants. <laughs> I don't think so either. I, I am glad you said that. I thought the exact same thing. I thought this man was lying about having servants. He's Straight like, oh, up. you're so late. That's why the servants aren't here. I think he has the carriage driver guy, and I think that's it. Yeah, I, I kind of thought he was the carriage driver, but... I wondered that myself, but I, I was yeah. not 100% sure. And, like, this is one of the things about Count Orlock. Like, he is he is not a stereotypical vampire. Like, he, he doesn't live in wealth and excess. You know, mm. he is not charming. 
he doesn't have servants doing his work for him and like he doesn't travel in style and like that's that's one of the things that like gets me like we can look at like you know interview with a vampire we can look at like twilight we can look at like literally any vampire movie since the 1920s and we kind of start to get these like beautiful vampires as opposed to this kind of like scary other creepy cretinous yeah 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 so i i don't know like i i keep wondering like how how did we go from like count orlock to you know the fabulous like edward cullen that we have today there's a book i read recently and i I won't spend too long talking about it but it's called rovers um and it's it's like a kind of a new take on vampire stuff, but, but vampires are essentially nomads. Um, they need to kill for sustenance, so they kind of travel in packs and they don't stay anywhere too long because otherwise the locals mm-hmm. will pick up on what they're doing. And they, they pretty much target people who are on the fringes of society, so like homeless people and sex workers and things like that, which the whole book is about how they've become monsters because of their, their transformation and everything like that, and they kind of ignore all the bad things that they do. But there's one vampire who lives like that, who lives in style. He's like the king vampire. He's been around for like 2,000 years. And there's there's exactly one guy who lives in style and has this level of renown. And he lives in Vegas where he kind of can just get away with anything he wants to do anyway. Um, wow. And I found, that, I found that really interesting because there was almost a, like a class dichotomy between like the new vampires and the old classic vampire, which I found... Um, really interesting but anyway that's not even that's an entirely different book that's not what we're here to talk about today one of the other things that really like came up a lot of times is this idea of plague um again like count orlock kind of resembles a rat in his character design but the rat motif might also have to do with the collective trauma that germany was experiencing due to the recent great war which ended i think like three years ago on this movie's timeline so uh, and, yeah. and then the sub- subsequent uh, Spanish flu pandemic. So the rat, rats hearten to, oh my God, the rats hearken to the bubonic plague, which was sp- spread through rats on ships. Uh, associating Orlock with the rats suggests his vampirism is a similar plague when he arrives at a city uh, because he arrives on a ship with a bunch of rats that he brought in his coffins with the goddamn soil. Yes, and we see that not only is Orlok spreading the plague through these rats that he brings along with him, um, we don't know if that's intentional or not, but we also see that Orlok himself and his vampirism is infectious. And it's not infectious in like the typical way of like, oh, a vampire bites you, the bite will turn you into a vampire. No, his infection is a little more supernatural than mechanical. So we first see how he affects Nock through writing. So Nock receives, you know, a written message from Orlok, and somehow the writing of that message affects Nock, and Nock kind of starts going insane. Yeah. And yeah, right? Right? <laughs> we, we haven't talked about really Nock's arc in this movie at all, like, because it just it didn't seem to fit into the summary anywhere. Um, yeah. But our, Nock, like reads this letter seems to go a little bit mad and then for the second half of the movie when orlock is in town he is like i didn't i couldn't keep track of like why was he even in jail to begin with was he just jailed for like 
insanity? Was, was that it? Like, yeah, he was acting okay. strange and insane. So they locked him up, like just just because, just in case. As and you then, do in like, 1922. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, as you do in eight, 1840 or so. Right. Of course. Yeah. Right. right. So. They lock Nock up because Nock is, like, going cray-cray about the town, like, some sort of, um, I think he was, like, uh, imprisoned for mania. Right, that was it. An acute mania, yeah. An acute mania, yeah. And, like, he manages to escape from jail um, and, like, starts essentially, like, terrorizing the locals and by terrorizing, I mean, like, running around the streets being chased by, like, a mob of people. Because <laughs> I think the 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 people of the town start to blame Nock for the plague for some That's reason. Right. That, well, I think they think he's the vampire. Cause he, so he goes, he goes cray-cray, he gets locked up, he strangles a guard and escapes. And then the people, like, yeah. literally chase him around the town trying to, like, throw rocks at him and kill him. Um until the vampire dies and then he cries that his master is dead um and what happened to him at the end did he get caught again or did he just die or what i forget yes so knock after like climbing onto a roof and stuff and getting rocks thrown at him eventually he's apprehended and brought back to the prison when he's in prison that's when orlock dies he cries out you know the master is dead the master is dead um and as far as we know, he stays in prison for who knows how long. <laughs> to this very day, some say. Yes, to this very day, right here. You know, our poor fucking uh, real estate agent. Like, he... I, like, did he do anything wrong, really? I don't think so. Like, knock... He... I... I was unclear. So I, I, when I was watching the movie, and again, I think just the nature of the way the movie is made and presented, I think there's different ways of interpreting things that happen. Because you're saying, you know, the letter came to him and it sort of drove him mad. He was infected by the vampire. I thought yeah. he was just a servant of the vampire the whole time. Like, because the way that people were like, oh, he's mysterious. No one knows anything about him, but he pays his people well. So my assumption is... He is sort of a familiar for uh, Orlock, and Ooh. he pays so well because he has money coming in from this ancient foreign royalty that he works for, and he was, like, scouting out a good place for Orlock to move to or whatever, and this is what he found. Uh, and that's... Ooh. So that was my interpretation, but I think either could be the right answer. I, I honestly don't know. Um, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that, that he would be like, that he is the servant and that, you know, he goes ahead of his master to like scout out a nice place to stay this time. So, okay, if, if then, if Nock is more of a servant to Orlock, that means mm -hmm. that Orlock has potentially done this before, has gone to a, like a different city, sent Nock ahead of him to like scout out an area then he goes he moves in he preys upon like the person he's living next door to you know which would be like um whoever came before ellen i guess so maybe Ooh. orlock has done this a couple of times we're not really sure 
Could be. Maybe he did that to his, like, the town in Transylvania that he lives in. Maybe he came from somewhere else before that, and now the locals have caught on to him, so he needs to find somewhere else to go. I don't know. Yeah. Ooh. Totally possible. I mean... That would mean he actually has a servant, though, and I kind of like the insecure loser version of Nosferatu (laughs) that we've imagined on this episode of the podcast, so I'm going to go with actually your interpretation. Okay, cool. (laughs) Because I really like him as someone who doesn't have servants but pretends he has servants. I find that so funny. (laughs) <laughs> he's just a lonely guy he's just like a lonely incel like sorry dude the idea of a like ancient immortal figure who needs to like keep up appearances and be like no i'm cool like that is so funny to me <laughs> that's iconic okay but if we're if we're sticking with it then then my idea that like orlock is being kind of like supernaturally infectious uh, also makes sense for why Ellen starts acting strange, right? Because when Hutter is being assaulted by Orlock, Helen, like, in, you know, another, like, town or area, like, she starts acting strange, like, kind of, ha- like, what is it? Like, night walking? Sleepwalking. She essentially, like, sleepwalks. Yeah. And Ellen is affected through her connection with her husband, right? Mm. And... I think I think it's pretty interesting, right? I don't know what's interesting, but I think it's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean yeah, because as you said, like vampirism, I wonder if it's if it's just a tell of like an older kind of storytelling if a modern audience mm-hmm. needs more of an explanation as to why things work. Um and we've talked about this in the past. I often feel like I don't need you to explain to me why supernatural things work the way they do, right? And we talked about this when we watched Old. It felt like, to me, my my take on it was they spent too much time explaining to us why the beach makes you old. I, as a film goer, was ready to watch it and just go, okay, I accept that there's a beach that makes you old. I I feel like a modern audience wants to know why and how and, and how things work and... I don't know. That's what. That's how you lead to over-explaining things. That's how you lead to like midichlorians and Star Wars and shit, right? Um, yeah. I I feel like I don't need to know that stuff. So maybe the storytellers of 1922 uh, and even before that, they're like, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it infects you through your dreams and your thoughts and your your love for your wife. If you're a wife guy, your wife gets it too. That's just the way. It yeah. Works. <laughs> um, and, and it didn't necessarily need to be like, well, it's humors that are passed through the blood and then they get into the brain and then what, we don't need that. Get get to the get to the spooky. <laughs> yeah, we're happy with our suspension of disbelief because even the like, okay, who did you think the narrator of the story was? Like, was it Hutter's best friend? Oh, it could have been. I think his name was like Harding or something like that. Yeah, um, Harding. It could. Uh, sure. Yeah, because wasn't he one of the ones who investigated the boat as well? He seemed to be, like, a local official of some sort. Like, someone I, with high I, standing, so... I think so, because, like, um... So, since this is a silent movie, they used, like, place cards and stuff and, like, showed, yeah. like, text and stuff. And some of them seemed to be coming from a guy who, like, had heard the story from Hutter and was, like, retelling the story. And at some point, he's like... Uh, he he essentially was our suspension of disbelief, right? Because he was like, oh, I assume after, like, having heard about this and, like, I theorize that, you know, the vampire 
traveled with soil because he needed to have his goddamn soil with him (laughs) soil that he was buried in to keep his powers like this wasn't actually explained in the movie itself but like was just a kind of like oh i i think it happened because of this x y and z (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i i'm i'm willing to support the theory that harding is the narrator here but it yeah yeah it was never really made clear um, and I guess the last point on plague before we move on is Nosferatu comes from the Greek word Nosophorus. Maybe I pronounced that right. Meaning, Nosophorus, meaning plague carrier. Um, yeah. So I mean, yeah, it all it all sort of ties in together with the plague and the rats and and whatever. Um, we we were talking about knock as well during that segment. So I I know you had notes on real estate agents. Yeah. So knock is our like. OG realtor and like he's 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 great because he pays people well but ultimately like he gets blamed by the town for the plague and used as a scapegoat and like I really wonder about this because like okay I for my master's right I was studying haunted houses and one Mm -hmm. thing I noticed with like haunted houses is that realtors show up a ton in these like horror films haunted house films and they are almost always shown to be a bad guy so we have like estate sales is a stereotyped line of business like from the very beginning of film if we look at knock and like i i don't know why realtors are so stereotyped i like i have yet to see like a good portrayal of one where they're like a good guy but oftentimes they're very like conniving and lying and like money grubbing. So it was interesting to see that Nock like actually paid his people well as opposed to like underpaying them. But instead he kind of like bribes Hutter with like the promise of commission. Well, and I think it's interesting too, because I think that this kind of also ties into part of like the Jewish stereotype thing that we were talking about earlier, right? Like, Ooh. again, with the stereotype being like money grubbing and having this, again, I thought he was he was uh, working for Nosferatu the whole time. So he's got this like secret stash of money that he uses to control things around him and influence people's lives. So again, that was how I read it originally. Um, again, Nock mm-hmm. is played by a Jewish actor. Um, so one would assume that if he was at the time reading these themes into it, that he would hopefully not like want to, <laughs> to take part in it. Um, but yeah, like Nock being a realtor, I think when you, what you're talking about, when you said like haunted houses, realtors come up a surprising amount of the time, that makes sense mm-hmm. to me because haunted houses like haunted house narratives are so often about place, right? Like it's about yes. this place, this house, whether it's the structure or whether it's the land having some sort of spiritual significance. And then real estate agents are the people who enact like the, the economy and industries uh, will upon yeah. the place. So, so often that real estate agent is someone who's trying to commodify this land or this structure and maybe force maybe let's just use some random like hypothetical example they're going to destroy the old mansion and then the ghost doesn't want that because this is where the ghost lives or something right so yeah they're they're sort of uh yeah inflicting the the wiles of industry upon a place which is meant to be sacred or goddamned or whatever it is uh and that's maybe why they're often sort of turned away by ghosts 
Yeah, and I think inflicting industry upon a land, that works quite well because, like, Nock is inflicting Count Orlock upon a land. And mm-hmm. Orlock could be, ooh, could be a metaphor for, guess, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, for capitalism oh no yay Um, (laughs) ding 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 we have our mention of capitalism for the episode (laughs) yes because count orlock i mean he's old money right so he's big business and Mm -hmm. him coming into town uh through knock shows that they're going through professionalism to bring Mm. old world values into this small town so Essentially, if we jump a few sharks, we get to Count Orlock is Walmart. Welcome to town. And Walmart is going to bring the plague and suck the town people dry of all of their money. I find this really interesting that we've sort of arrived here because I think it shows how, again, like we talk about vampires representing the other a lot of the time. And I think it really shows how often, you know, whether it's... um, whether it's a vampire or whether it's some kind of other villain, a lot of times you can just sort of project whatever you want onto these figures, right? Like the uh, yeah, the 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 socialist-minded person can project that oh, clearly this vampire represents capitalism and industry, and they can project that onto the story. Whereas someone who is like um, I don't want to just say a conservative-minded person, but let's say like someone who is a bigot can be like, yeah. well, the vampire rep- clearly represents immigrants or whatever and yeah and how they come here and infect us and you can kind of read whatever you want to into these stories um and and maybe that's why they have so much mass appeal because everyone is scared of something evil and more powerful than you coming to town Uh, whether that's an industry that you can't hope to compete with or uh whether you're, you're a xenophobe everyone's scared of something it's so true well, well, well analyzed, Jake. Bravo. Thank you. I, I think you're definitely right. When, when it comes to talking about the other, it can be anything. Like, and I think that's why the other is such a popular motif in horror is because it opens up all of those avenues for an- analogies and metaphors. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's why we love it, right? Like often... Oh, absolutely. Horror is something where, like we said, everyone's scared of something. So if you can turn those fears into a narrative that is compelling and, and says something about it, and I, we'll get around to talking about them sometime. But like, there's there's great, like, uh, some of my favorites are like the Mike Flanagan series on Netflix, right? Like Hill House and Bly Manor and Midnight mm-hmm. Mass and stuff, where it's, it's all about like very contemporary fears of like homophobia and like... Uh, evangelical like right-wing religion that is like inflicting itself upon you and like uh, horror is a genre that honestly fits in every timeline for the fears of every population and and can be reworked in so many different ways to sort of uh express those anxieties which i i love that's what i love about it honestly yeah Um, i want to i want to take a let's take a sharp turn here I want to talk about asexuality in this movie because oh my god one of my favorite topics i am here to argue that it actually features very prominently in this movie this this movie does not require a could have been gayer segment because i think we have a pretty explicit like asexual couple in the mix here um a protagonist even okay so 
the vampire book, as we know from the summary, says that the only way to be saved from a vampire is for a sinless maiden, like aka a virgin, clearly, to offer herself to him willingly, causing him to forget the crow of the cock, the cock-a-doodle-doo, the rising of the sun. Um, Hutter and Ellen were married at the beginning of the story. And Ellen is the, the virgin who, you know, entices the vampire to come over and forget the, the cock crow. Uh, so she's the virgin who, who wins, who wins the day for us. She's the MVP of the story, but they were married at the big, exactly. She's the, she's the final girl, maybe the first final girl. Who knows? Um, but they were married at the beginning of the story. So it's not like they were saving themselves for marriage. So the Mm. only explanation is that they're an ace couple. Furthermore, Nock knows that Orlok will have a penchant. Again, this is my theory wherein Nock is a servant yes. <laughs> to Orlok. Nock knows that Orlok will have a penchant for sinless maiden blood, and that's why he picks the picks out the house directly across from the Hutters for Orlok to move into. Therefore, Hutter and Ellen are visibly asexual amongst their community. Orlok knows their yeah. business, knows that they're ace, knows that she's a virgin, and that Orlok that his boss is going to want to suck down on her lovely neck. Um, so that's my theory. I think we have a, a visibly out ace couple in the story. If it was higher def, we'd probably see that they have those ace rings on or whatever. I don't know. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> see, I, I, I had a different interpretation, but I do love the asexual representation. So hi, my name is Shannon. I am asexual and... Mm-hmm. I love ace representation when it's done well, because, like, honestly, they do come across as quite the ace couple. Like, Hutter, you know, has a few kisses with Ellen, but that's about it. And, like, you know, I I actually fucking loved in the beginning of the movie, like, Hutter trying to be romantic, like, picks some flowers and, like, gives them to Ellen. And she's like... (laughs) Why did you kill these flowers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was like, fuck your romance. So I think if anything, Ellen is also a romantic asexual. But I so I had a bit of a different interpretation, even though I love I love this interpretation. Thank you, Jake. Mm-hmm. Um like she really is the story's MVP, but I think like when I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, she is the first married non-virginal woman I've ever seen respected as like a sinless and virtuous woman in film. She like defies the original shtick of like vampire films, like needing her to be a virgin to like overcome the curse by being married. And you know, I, like, I was working on the assumption that she and Hutter had had marital relations at least once, you know, to, to, uh, bind their marriage vows. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that she would be seen as sinless because, like, you almost never get that. Like, you have these different, um, stereotype versions of women and there's usually, like, the virgin the mother and the whore Mm -hmm. and she is ellen is none of them ellen is married but she is not a mother um she is not a virgin she's not a whore because she's seen as sinless so Mm. i i thought that was really interesting um that she would be sinless even as a married woman because you you almost never see that and 
I think it would be because she probably has sex under the right circumstances, which is right. within a marriage for reproductive purposes and not for pleasure. Like, sex for her is probably a duty, <laughs> if she is having it at all, which, again, does lend itself to her being asexual. So, like, she probably doesn't bring up sex with her husband, but would have it to fulfill her duty as a good Catholic woman. Though we don't know what they're religious. We don't even know if they are religious. I mean, uh, I just assume. Yeah. I was going to say is it... now I don't know off the top of my head. I don't know if you do. What was the dominant religion in 1840s Germany or 1830s Germany? I I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Let me see. <laughs> We're Googling it. Okay. <laughs> Germany religion. Rel- Religion. I would imagine it's Christianity, not Catholic. Yeah, like like non-Catholic Christianity. That would be my yeah, guess. But it's probably like Lutheranism, Luther, Luther, Lutherism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. So we can assume that they're like good Christians, right? Even, which actually is kind of interesting that we don't see anything about religion in the film. Like, they aren't even wearing crosses. There are no crosses on the walls as their decor. Like, you would think, like, today it's very popular to, like, like, in vampire movies to have, like, religious characters and, like, outwardly religious characters. Whereas Ellen and Hutter? Nah, we don't see any religiosity we just see skepticism. Mm. I, like, I find it interesting it. too that yeah, like you said, we don't get really any religion, but it's not even like like it kind of foregoes a few different vampire staple staples, right? Like we don't have stakes yeah. through the heart, and we don't have crosses that uh, repel the vampires. Yeah. So yeah, religion doesn't really play in here at all, other than the dirt being goddamned that he was that he was buried in. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, we actually, I think this was the first vampire that was ever killed by sunlight. Like, before this, vampires were, would be, like, weakened during the day and during sunlight, but never before had, like, sunlight outrightly killed the vampire. So that was, like, a first and, like, an invention of Nosferatu. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas today, we get vampires that sparkle in the sun. You know. Yeah, it still can't go in the sunlight, but for different reasons. Not because they'll die, but because they'll be distractingly sparkly, giving away their vampirism. Yes. So sparkly. <laughs> so we do, like, we may not get religion in this film, but we do get a bit about uh, skepticism and superstition. Superstition. Oh, wow. I can't even spell superstition. Man. <laughs> I got you. Words are hard. Perfect. So, uh, like, Hutter is clearly skeptical. Like, he finds this book um, on vampires and magic and literally, like, laughs and tosses it aside. Like, ha, that's ridiculous. There's no such thing as that. And even when he's bitten, Hutter still, like, blames mosquitoes. He's, like, writing a letter to his wife saying, ah, yes, two mosquitoes bit me. They're bite marks side by side on my neck, you know? Like, Hutter shows this, like, level of unreasonable doubt for what's happening. Mm. And 
refuses to acknowledge the clues in front of him that add up to, oh, he is spending the night in a castle with a vampire. But in contrast, we get the townspeople who are superstitious. You know, um, the carriage drivers that originally take Hutter up toward the castle refuse to go near the castle once it's in view because they get a creepy vibe from it. They don't even say, like, that they're superstitious. They don't say that there's, like, rumors of something up there. They literally just say, it's creepy. We don't want to go near it. And for anyone listening who hasn't seen it, they literally say, it's creepy. Like, they're we're not adding that language into it. They're like, it is too creepy over there. We will go no further. Exactly. Like, they say it's creepy, and that's it. And, like, honestly relatable they were (laughs) smart to stay away from the creepy place they were like it's creepy nope 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 and like nope out of there they were like yeet goodbye they they use the word creepy a couple times in this movie in a in a context which i just find funny in today's like parlance i don't know why like the, the word creepy doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as like macabre or or like legit scary to me so it was like yeah like the river the river raft that uh nosferatu travels down first it was like the the river men the boatmen had no idea of their creepy cargo (laughs) and i was like (laughs) i think like in modern day terms you might say like their their dark their dark cargo or their whatever Uh, like their gruesome their gruesome load (laughs) okay that honestly that sounds like something from a porn okay (laughs) but you know what i mean like creepy just seems out of place to me i don't i don't know why yeah it does me but um no i i agree with you it seems a little out of place but i like it we talked about last week when it came to scooby-doo like the skepticism was a big theme there that, that again they didn't really get into that much because it being a kids movie but they did say at one point like there's a point where you cross from healthy skepticism into denial and again one of the yeah. things i love about horror is almost inevitably like you the characters will have to come to terms with that they're essentially in a horror story that oh my god there really is a vampire i'm i'm yeah and supernatural horror in particular at some point there's going to be a character that doesn't believe in things and is going to just be left with no choice but to believe in the things that they're witnessing um and i really love that like every time that happens i'm like yeah when are they going to figure it out and then when are they going to accept it those are often two different steps Ooh, yeah so i think hutter figures it out when like when he sees count orlock right and okay okay i'm gonna defend him yeeting out the window okay on on the mage makeshift rope i think that hutter even though he watched orlock leave the castle in like his coffins i think he was just too scared to leave his room and like too scared of opening that door and opening the possibility of running into orlock again or opening the possibility of running into a vampire again like, I think that door is a nice metaphor for how Hutter was too scared to, like, open the possibility that mm. there is a vampire and to, like, possibly believe in that book that he took, even though he, like, kind of cast it aside and was like, I think he subconsciously knew that, yes, vampires are real, but he was too scared to open that possibility into his, like, 
knowing rational mind. So he like maintained plausible like deniability and plausible doubt by being like remaining in denial. And part of his denial manifested in him not leaving his room at the castle and instead of going out the front door and like seeing all the potential like um evidence of vampirism instead of that he climbed out the window on a rope and fell and he would rather be in pain than than like break his denial i i like that i will say you know we've discussed as with a silent movie the storytelling is such that there are multiple interpretations that can be yeah. correct or acceptable. <laughs> I just prefer the interpretation that he's such a himbo. He just didn't think that like going down the stairs didn't occur to him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I also love himbo Hutter. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also, okay. If we, we mentioned the werewolf scene really briefly, but yeah, like the locals tell him he can't go out at night because there's werewolves. And then we see a scene of like a, dog-like creature spooking the horses and was that a hyena I, it looked like a hyena to me like it I didn't looked know like idea. a hyena i think I, it was or is it one of those things where like dogs look different in 1922 because there wasn't like all the bad like inbreeding to try to get like purebreds and stuff maybe it was oh just God. a dog just... maybe that's just what dogs look like in 1922 i don't know maybe i'm gonna look up a hyena real quick and like it, it does look like a hyena because of the stripes on it. Yeah. So I th I think it might have been a hyena because that would also make sense. Like with kind of towing the line of superstition that either it could be a werewolf or it could be that there's genuinely like a hyena or a, a dog like hyena in the town and the townspeople call it a werewolf even though it's just some sort of canine predator <laughs> they're like we know there's a vampire so this is we we're not going to be fooled again we know what that thing is it's not just yeah, a, we know a, what do a wayward dog <laughs> you can't fool us once shame on us <laughs> <laughs> fool us twice and we might die oh wait yeah yeah i i fucked it up i i george bushed it god damn it oh no <laughs> yeah well uh, anyway, all right, let's move on to some trivia, and then maybe we can talk about um, what we're going to talk about next week. But so one thing that I found interesting is that there was going to be a planned remake of this movie. So there, there was a remake in the 70s, and then there was maybe yeah. going to be a remake around like the mid to late 2010s it was brewing. And Robert Eggers, director of The Lighthouse, which we love, was going to direct it um, with... Anya Taylor-Joy, which I think that'd be interesting because she could be any of the main roles, right? Like, you could you could gender swap whoever you want. It doesn't matter. It's... Oh, yeah. Easy. So she could be Ellen, or she could be Hutter, or she could be Nosferatu. I think it's most interesting if Anya Taylor-Joy is Nosferatu. I would actually pay yes. so much money to see that. Um, however, as of 2019, Eggers said that it seems unlikely that that movie will ever be made. So that's a little sad, but uh, he's he's working on some other good stuff. So, you know. We'll, yeah we'll see what what comes of it um there's also a 2000 movie called shadow of the vampire which i have not seen but it's a fictionalized account uh, a fictionalized account of the making of nosferatu it stars john malkovich and <gasps> willem dafoe who we love on this podcast <laughs> this is first and foremost a willem dafoe fan podcast and secondly it's a queer horror podcast um yeah yeah we I also just love have that 
Uh, yeah, we love Willem to friend. We should, if we ever make merch for this podcast, which we'll have to have more than nine listeners if we ever want to make merch, but we should, I would, I would love a t-shirt that says friends of Defoe. Ooh, ooh yeah. I like that. And we can have a nice picture of Willem on there, probably from uh, the lighthouse. That probably. would be great. Yeah. That would be amazing. Uh, so another piece of trivia, and I thought this one was really interesting, is, you know, Nosferatu is adapted for Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it's unofficial. Um, and, uh, you know, alterations were made to it to appeal to a German audience more. But according to Wikipedia, as we are citing the best source ever, according to Only Wikipedia... Only the best for us. Yeah. <laughs> Stoker's heirs sued over the adaptation, and a court ruling ordered that all copies of the film Nosferatu be destroyed. However, several prints of Nosferatu survived, and the film came to be regarded as an influential masterpiece of cinema. So, Nosferatu was not supposed to exist for mm -hmm. very long. Like, it was, it was all supposed to be destroyed, but we're actually really lucky that a few copies of it survived so that we could watch it today but like you know according to like a, a legal dispute today we should not have nosferatu but we do thankfully like so people like squirreling away their copies and saying mm -hmm. fuck you to the lawsuit has like given us a hundred years of history that otherwise would have been destroyed and, and now, you know, and then those collector's copies got digitized and put on the internet, which is why there's so many different versions of it sort of around. And, and who knows, like, what level of disrepair these, these reels were in by the time they were able to be digitized. But that's, it's really exciting to know that that's how things got uh, preserved forever. Because now that it's on the right? internet, it's around forever. Um, I also find it interesting to think about, like, old copyright law because uh, i don't know how the law worked back then but like dracula is like common uh, what do they call it like free domain or whatever public public yeah. domain dracula is like you can make your own dracula story whatever that's why uh hotel transylvania exists <laughs> and whatever oh, adam, adam sandler count dracula you can do whatever you want with dracula there's no limits on that and it's weird to think of a time back in 1922 when that was not the case that you can just we, uh, by the way, we've said 1922 so much. We need to add the movie 1922 to the <laughs> to our list because. Uh, Wait, there's a movie called 1922. Oh, it's a Stephen King movie, and it's real good. <gasps> it's it's based off a short story, which the best Stephen King movies are adapted from Stephen King short stories, uh, rather than yes. full novels. Um, and it's really good. It stars Thomas Jane as all the best Stephen King movies do, because um, that man was <laughs> born and bred to be a Stephen King protagonist, and amazing. Uh, yeah, it's it's excellent. He does like a really good like I think it's Nebraska uh, that it's set in. Anyway, he does a really good like old timey farmer accent. He lives on a corn farm and does some dark stuff, and it's it's real good. Oh my god, yes! And he, there's like several points where he talks about like back in 1922, and it, every time I we've said in 1922, <laughs> I think about the way that he said it. Um, do you want to talk about our favorite iconic. parts of the movie? Yeah, I mean, I already said my... Oh, I I said my one favorite. So I loved when uh, Count Orlock was carrying around his coffin. That mm -hmm. was just hilarious. 
But yep. they also do some beautiful shadow work, especially near the end of the film when mm. Nosferatu is going up the stairs toward Ellen. Yes. And they show, like, um, the shadow of, like, the stair railing and the shadow of Count Orlock. And I just, I, I loved his posing for that. It's a very, like, iconic shot. And they also do a bit of shadow work with, like, Count Orlock, like, reaching over to Ellen and, like, his shadow hand is, like, mm-hmm. over where her heart is. And then he, like, clutches his hand as though, like, grabbing her heart through the shadows. I I loved it. I thought it was, like, cinematically beautiful. What about you, if Jake? You, if you go on the IMDb, like, the first picture that comes up for Nosferatu is, like, a promotional poster using that shot of him going up the stairs. And you can see, like, his pointy fingers and stuff. So that's... Um... Yes. If anyone's looking for that image for reference, just go to the IMDb and you'll see it right there, front and center. I am struggling to come up with a more favorite part than Hutter just jumping out the window for no reason. Um, (laughs) But I don't know. Beyond that, I feel like we haven't really talked about the ship scene at all, but he, you know, the vampire is like sleeping in his coffin on the ship. And there's like a few scenes of like basically all of the sailors being driven insane just by his presence like they don't they just know that there's like kind of big boxes down there they don't i don't think they even know that they're coffins necessarily um but rats start coming out of them they all start getting the plague and then some of them start having visions of the vampire um even though he's lying in his coffin they're having like these visions of him sitting and staring at them and he's sort of like this is early special effects right where like a fade in like just having a person kind of fade into a scene is very impressive back then um and that was cool. Like, that was, uh, it was cool to see. I sometimes find old special effects, like, more effective more on me. Like, more scoop. More, yeah. I just said scoopy. Spooky. <laughs> I got stuck between <laughs> spooky and scary, and I said scoopy. Anyway, uh, old special effects are sometimes more scoopy to me than, like, modern ones. Because if it's, like, a CGI monster that you can fully see it, that's not necessarily always more effective than, like, a thing just sort of fading in in an unnatural way um yeah we've talked about like amityville horror before and that's a movie that i saw when i was really young and they've got like some old like 70 special effects in there and they scare me like to this day i find them very scoopy yeah i mean even just like a door opening on its own like yeah that can be spooky af or scoopy if you prefer or, uh, yeah <laughs> I, I like scoopy. <laughs> yeah um shannon what's our next movie what are we talking about next week So next week, we'll be watching a beautiful piece uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky, Aronofsky, uh, starring Natalie Portman. And that is the epic, the beautiful, the terrifying Black Swan from 2010. And it is set in the world of ballet and has uh, lesbians. It's got some (laughs) lesbians. Yeah, and we love the lesbians. We love, love, love the lesbians. Jake, have you seen this movie before? Uh, I have not, but, like, I'm really looking forward to watching it. Um, a, a really close friend of mine told me that this movie was her bisexual awakening, so, like, I'm excited to see how people are, you know, how, how people are uh, getting... What excites people about this movie? I'm excited to see it, so... <laughs> um, I I love it. Yeah, no, it should be good. I'm I'm into it from what I hear. It's like very psychological. I think it deals with themes of like um 
insecurity and like try like trying to be perfect and and that kind of stuff but again i haven't seen yes. it so i'll have more opinions on it next week for sure we'll you know talk about it for an hour plus like we like we always do <laughs> yeah so, i think you'll i think you'll really enjoy it well everybody that's going to be it for us this week thank you very much for listening uh i hope you enjoyed our exploration of nosferatu from 1922 um and if you want to get in touch with us follow us on instagram that's where we're the most active um you can find us what are we at <laughs> we should probably say our at, instagram tag <laughs> yeah we're at skeleton closet pod You'll also find a link in the description of this, which will take you to our link tree, which will take you to our Instagram, as well as other socials and, uh, you know, how to subscribe to this podcast, which you can already do on the podcatcher with which you're listening. Um, we have not the gotten any... cute. We have not gotten any better at making these uh, outros any less awkward, eh? But... Eh, nope, we're terrible at it, but that's <laughs> okay. So we will see you next time, or I guess hear you next time on our next episode on the lax one hell yeah have a great week everybody take care of yourself bye